self-taught multidisciplinary artist whose work experiments with many languages, art forms, and genres to search out and dwell with the dualities, gray areas, and forms of hybridity that resonate with her own experience of inhabiting a self that exists across multiple languages and these competing and conflicting cultural histories. She's currently based in Montreal and has exhibited across Canada and across the globe. Her short film, Mobilize, takes you on a feverish, exhilarating journey from the far north to the urban south. And her more recent video installation, Transatlantic, takes us on an immersive and disruptive trip across the colonial route of the Atlantic Ocean. She's currently in post-production on her first feature-length narrative film, Bootlegger, which won Best Screenplay at Cannes Cine Foundation in 2017 and has just been picked up by an international distributor. The film is a community-oriented engagement with ideas of self-determination, finding a cohesive sense of self in a world of borders, and the sort of individual and collective resilience required to endure through trauma. In this interview, she talks about how the pandemic has influenced the way she thinks about producing art, and how returning to her original, more improvisational approach to creating allows her to produce with the greatest amount of self-assurance and freedom. To begin with, I wanted to talk about, um, in a sense, how active you are on, you know, Instagram, on social media, in using these platforms to give people access to the work that you're currently doing and your process. Um, one of the things that you you note on Instagram is that you you really feel lucky right now that you're able to continue working during these these pandemic times, um, and I kind of wanted to use that as a means of asking you, um, you know, what kinds of challenges you've faced uh, working in Montreal, um, you know, in the studio during the pandemic, what what has sort of changed, how your daily practice today is different than it's been in the past? Have all the challenges been uh, just difficult or are there kind of productive things that have come out of having to shift the way you work in the context of the pandemic? Hmm. It's been definitely an interesting time for me, uh, this pandemic. I, I see it as a as a cycle. I was coming out of a very busy cycle of production and um, uh, presentation of my work. And I guess it was a, I was uh, working at, at a very rapid, fast-paced rhythm. And um, so the, when the pandemic hit, it was almost a, a moment for me to take a step back and to um, because everything was uh, locked down for for three months, it was a time of uh, really just stopping for a moment, and it was quite beneficial for me because I think I was um, I needed that that break. It was a time for me to just uh, get some rest a little bit and start thinking about what type of work that I wanted to make uh, instead of just catching up. Uh, on production and catching up to the next exhibition and the next uh, trip or the next film festival. Or, um, so it, it was, a, I was quite, uh, I mean, for me, it was a beneficial moment where I could just focus on what is it that I'm trying to do with the work and what is it I'm trying to say and where's the work going. It, it was also trying to adapt uh, the work in a different way. It was a time for me to really focus on research uh, I start. I started reading uh, a lot more. Uh, uh, something I didn't really have time to do before. And uh, before I was only reading, you know, for research um, uh, specific to to the 
to the works I was doing or like specific to uh, moments in time and exhibitions. But uh, at this time, I could start branching out. So that also meant opening up to new ideas and trying to to branch out to pos- new possibilities for the work in the future. Hmm. So I would say in general, it, it allowed me to start thinking uh, much more ahead, which is a bit... Uh, uh, contradictory with the pandemic, when no, where everything, you know, stopped and no one could really think about the future. We we couldn't make plans, and but in my case, and I'm just talking about the work. Um, I could start thinking about new ideas of what I wanted to explore within the work. That sounds pretty exciting. Um, you know that that work of reevaluating, um, and you know, uh, I kind of wanted to. I guess, you know, start uh, kind of rewind and start at the beginning um, and uh, uh, sort of, you know, you say that you're sort of adapting the type of work that you do. Um, you know, it, it, I've noticed that you you talk about the fact that your, your art, uh, the work that you do doesn't necessarily come from a place of sort of like rigorous, like formal training. Mm-hmm. And and you know it's interesting because Heather uh, Iglio Lorti, uh, the curator yes. at the yeah the you probably know this person. My French is terrible. I'm not bilingual. <laughs> I apologize. In Montreal, um, you know she talks about how it's often claimed that indigenous languages don't have a word for art or artist, mm-hmm. and she says that like that is mainly because art is a part of everything that indigenous folks do uh, in community, and and it's like a part of. It's it's not it's not reducible to a singular concept, she says. Absolutely, it's embedded in everything that we do, which is you know uh, different, obviously, from the very kind of you know classif- classified way in which you know art as a profession is is sometimes understood in in sort of Eurocentric ways, um, and we can even maybe relate this to one of the the apparently the translated meanings of. Anishinaabe, uh, you know, there's a there's an Ojibwe historian, Basil Johnson, who talks about how uh, one of the terms, literal translations, is beings made out of nothing or spontaneous beings, <laughs> um, and and so it's clearly there's like this improvisational quality. The way that, for example, you put together your short film, Mobilize, shows that kind of improvisational quality that that your art has. Um, to what extent do you think uh, that? your art, the propulsive nature of a film like Mobilize comes from the fact that you didn't actually, as you say, come from an artistically driven family and you didn't actually have that formal academic training. Do you think that's something that frees you up to create in these more improvisational ways? Absolutely. And I think from the beginning, I I mean, I started making art in a very spontaneous way. I picked up a camera and made a short film. The first film I made was titled Ikwe, which means woman in the Anishinaabemowin language. Um, and I did it in my living room all by myself, and it came from a very spontaneous urge to want to express myself. And I feel uh, when it's uh, when I create work in a spontaneous way, it's often the most liberating type of work that I make. It's where I doubt myself the less. It's where I have the most fun as well. Um, so as years pass by, I always try to go back to that initial spontaneity. Uh, that allows me to create without uh, any rules or any barriers or any self-doubt. Sometimes when you have uh, 
bigger bigger frames or bigger uh, budgets or you, or you you start putting pressure on yourself to create you know an exhibition or a film uh, you start losing that kind of um, spontaneous raw way of creating and it, it's not that it's bad it's just it's fun to have these projects uh, along the way that remind you uh, why you create in the first place and that that kind of instinctive uh, urge to create and that um, ideas that are flowing very naturally. Yeah, I imagine so, right? There's a different kind of pressure, uh, time pressures, financial pressures that, um, you know, don't exist necessarily. And, you know, uh, one of the um, one of the things that I, I saw online, there's this this short video from, I think it's like RBC on Emerging Artists, where you talk about how art shouldn't just be beautiful. <laughs> yes. And and I, I see a kind of, you know, a trajectory in your work from Ikwe, which is such a, a beautiful short film, to films that are um, more unnerving in a way uh, that inspire, you know, this kind of sublime uneasiness. Um, and and I, you seem to be, you know, more and more engaged with um, how to produce a certain kind of like transformation, social transformation, political transformation. Um there's that drive to capture, um, you know, people in motion uh, and a world, if not in crisis, in in a state of instability. Mm-hmm. I think I think creating uh, creating film is is also about engaging with an audience. And if I'm taking time from people, uh, what what is it that I want to say? I I use a platform to express myself, yes, but also to express myself on what topic or uh, what is my perspective on the world around me and what can I offer uh, positively to that world around me. And um, films are about narrative as well. So what's the narrative behind the film that I I am creating? And uh, even the most uh, spontaneous works, uh, they have to carry some kind of weight or some kind of uh, narrative. It can't be just beautiful images. Um, or that would be a what I would consider more ephemeral type of work. And it's possible. There's some people that do it. It's just not the type of work that I create. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to contribute positively to society. And I've, I think filmmaking or media in general is a powerful tool for education, empowerment, uh, and offering some kind of perspective on the world. Yeah, and and I think you you can really feel that uh, in the work that you do, um, and it, you know one of the one of the most interesting things I've I've read that you you've said about film is that you think it's often um, and I, f- I forget exactly where you said this the most surprising films that get attention mm-hmm. that that element of surprise is interesting um, and and you you seem to really chafe against this kind of this tendency within the art world to try and categorize art. Um, you know, like we, these, these categories obviously are kind of productive in a way, you know, naming art, abstract, experimental, improvisational, ephemeral even. Um, but then at a certain point, you clearly, you know, resist putting, putting work, as you say, in, in particular boxes. Um, and I wonder to what extent that is, because, you know, I know that you originally studied sociology mm-hmm. and, and now there's like a movement away from a certain kind of like, you know, academic tendency, I think, to categorize. Um, and many people, like Antonio Viego has this book, Dead Subjects, where he writes 
um, that there's an imperative in the academy to make native peoples knowable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is is it about trying to like recognize that there is something there that does take away the the possibility of surprise on some level? I'm not sure if I do it intentionally, but uh, uh, I do uh, like to explore the gray zones between uh, categories and borders. I mean, uh, uh, mm-hmm. duality in general. I come from two different cultures, and I and I grew up between you know French English, uh, France Canada, Anishinaabe French. Um, so these dualities are always been present in my work. And I'm also interested with uh, many art forms. So it's been reflected in the work that I do. I like to uh, challenge what is documentary, traditional documentary, traditional experimental uh, fiction, narrative films. Um, I like to, to play with these kind of, um, how would you call that, these uh, languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, genre, is it horror? Is it drama? Is it... Um, you know, 16 millimeters is a digital. Sometimes I like to mix all of these languages together to create kind of this hybrid form, uh, which feels very uh, personal and feels uh, represents uh, where I'm coming from as an individual. Um, so I like to navigate between all these things. And I don't like to be categorized in, into one thing because I, if you do that, you're stopping, you're, you're stagnating. Uh, I think we're it's ebb and flow and we're constantly uh, moving forward. We're constantly transforming. Each experience makes you a different person and, and we evolve as individuals, as, as people as well, and as society. And I think that has to be reflected in the work that we do as well. And, you know, I think um, it makes for much more exciting work just for the, the viewers of your work. I mean, um, this is something that like, clearly you are playing with, the audience's expectations as well, <laughs> you know, like from, from even like these early films that you've done, um, 360 degrees, for example, I found to be such a moving documentary, um, you know, but it is in some ways a kind of more, I guess, modernist or conventional documentary in a certain sense. And then now, you know, moving and trying to play with those forms and induce a kind of element of surprise without, I guess, completely ignoring the viewer, um, you know, and, and setting them adrift. Uh, your feature film debut, uh, Bootlegger, for example, I wanted to maybe talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you won Best Screenplay at Cannes Cine Foundation in 2017. It's now just been picked up by an international distributor. Yes. So, I mean, congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested. So in terms of so this is this is a, a narrative film. This is this is a film that is not documentary, and so there maybe are certain kind of generic expectations or conventions. But even then, like it's clear that the way that the film is made is is unique. It's it's an autonomous like it's a film that is about self representation and self determination, and it's made with I can I think crucially a lot of community involvement. Absolutely, yes. And, 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 you know, people like Houston Wood have written about how this is something that's actually kind of unique to Indigenous filmmaking and something that the film industry almost doesn't understand. <laughs> and, you know, for your imaginative uh, keynote, you spoke about the fact that, you know, when you can't work with an Indigenous crew of filmmakers because it's virtually impossible to assemble one mm-hmm. uh, in the industry, you tend to take on the role of cultural interpreter. I wondered if, if you could speak to the fundamental ideas behind bootlegger 
and why engaging and involving the community in the creative process was a necessary part of that project. Well, Bootlegger is set into a, a First Nation community in Northern Quebec. So it, I had to, I mean, it, it made sense to work with the community and also to work with the community I'm connected to uh, from my mater- maternal family, which is uh, Kirigansibi Anishinaabe, just uh, two hours north of Ottawa. Uh, but it's an entirely fictionalized uh, story and community. Uh, and the film is really exploring, like you said, themes of self-determination, uh, you know, wanting to change things and, and uh, finding your place uh, in society and trying to fit in within that community. Uh, basically, it's the story of a young, young girl that comes back to her community after many years of not uh, visiting and she, she's struggling to find her place. And I guess the only way she she can in, um, engage is by working, or that because that's how she knows how how to um, to contribute. So working and trying to um, get involved um, within the community. But it's about you know uh, dealing with past trauma. It's about uh, finding uh, self determination and and just uh, becoming at peace with where you're you're from and and uh, who you are as a person. Um, but I'd like to go back to what you were saying earlier. Um, I don't really think about uh, my my audience when I make films. Uh, I feel that each film that I made from the very beginning was an exploration of um, the medium and also of myself. I challenge myself every single time to learn something new, to explore a new a new uh, avenue or a new way of doing things. So I think that's why I started exploring experimental and then documentary and then flirted with narrative film. And uh, when Bootlegger, Bootlegger arrived, it was a, obviously it's a new challenge because it's a first feature film, but it was also a new challenge because I was going to work with actors prom- uh, prominently, uh, working with community. Um, so it was, a, it was a new challenge that I knew I would learn so much. And obviously I did. I learned uh, tremendously uh, during that process. And I can't wait to see the film. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's going to be uh, so exciting. And it's, you know, interesting, like your kind of reflections on on the importance of like the medium, the texture of a particular medium. You've you mentioned, uh, I saw you mentioned in a National Post article that the ideas determine the medium in which they are to be expressed, mm-hmm. um, which was such a, like um, interesting way of thinking about it. But uh, uh, you know, and and uh, some of the work that I've read points out that there has been this kind of you know uh, resurgence in filmmaking by people who don't necessarily have access to the same kinds of resources, but certain things have kind of freed up the flow of those resources. Right? Um, it is it is now differently possible to gain access to the means of cultural production and and share things online, uh, which is really exciting. Yeah. That's the democratization of, of media as well. I mean, now nowadays, almost everyone has a cell phone. Everyone can take pictures. Uh, and with making pictures, you can do stop motion animation. You can do videos. You can, you know, start filming your surrounding. You can start um, talking about your culture. You can do a lot of things with the... Uh, with just that that medium of a cell phone, or, you know, DSLR cameras are becoming more accessible as well. Sound devices as well. So you 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 can start to create within your your own living room, and that's very exciting for what's what's to come. Mm-hmm. 
I think you're right that there is a democratization of, of media production that that is breaking down barriers. But what I really loved about your keynote uh, last year for uh, the Imaginative um, you know festival mm-hmm. is that you're you're like you're also engaging with the challenges, the barriers that still exist, and the fact that it is still difficult to surround yourself with other Indigenous filmmakers. You say. I dream of the day when we can do all Indigenous work and the entire production team will be connected to the Indigenous community. Um, and again, like, so there's this there's this exciting breaking down of barriers, but then there's still, like, your, your sense is that there's still um, a lack of resources for, you know, Indigenous creatives to actually become professionals in a variety of different fields within cinema, like yeah. sound engineers, editors, and so on. Um, and, and the thing too, is like, you admit that it's a a problem for which you have no immediate solution, but I wanted you, if you could, to speculate on what might need to happen, um, in order to make that possible, like these more demanding fields of narrative cinema to be opened up to more people to be, as it were, democratized. I think we definitely need more training and people need to be aware that uh, getting into the film industry doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a director or producer. There's all these other roles that need to be filled. And maybe the the next generation or the youth today, they're not necessarily aware of that, that um, you could go into uh, makeup and hair, you could go into set design. Those are really interesting uh, positions. Uh, to be filled as well, and they're quite creative. And if you're not that creative, you can be, you know, a, a, on the technical side. Uh, there's so many roles to 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 be filled on a on a set. Um, and I think that's where we need to educate and we need to train people. And it was difficult to, um, you know, in the making of this first feature film, bringing this entire crew. Uh, from Montreal into the community, I felt a big responsibility because I was the one bringing bringing them into the community and and playing that kind of middleman role, making sure that everything was done with respect, every, that the crew would understand where they where they are, that they respect the people from the community, that we're not um, this is not uh, our place. We're in we're invited as guests, and we need to be. Um, uh, our attitude and our, our actions need to reflect that. Um, but obviously, if you're a crew of you know 50 people, you can't control everyone's action. So, um, so we also tried to have some mentorship on the crew uh, during the filming, and that was also quite a difficult part because I was filming in French, and the crew was mostly francophone, and where we were filming, it was mostly anglophone. So there's a, there was some kind of language barrier as well. And, and I think um, the Ang- indigenous anglophone community has maybe a little bit more resources than the francophone community, because I did look here in Quebec to hire indigenous key creatives, such as you know the, the camera person, the sound guy. And I looked really hard. And uh, at one point, uh, yes, you can, you can hire those individuals that maybe ha- have a little bit of experience, but when you're doing a feature film, and I'm already on experience because it's my first feature film. Uh, you need to have people that can support you also in those roles, right? So uh, sometimes it's a matter of do you go with an experienced person that is not from your community or do you uh, go with someone that, that doesn't have the experience but is from your community? So it's a, sometimes it's a difficult decision to make. It sounds extremely hard and <laughs> it sounds as though 
as you as you said at the beginning of the conversation, like that you you needed this break to some extent just to catch your breath. Um, and and these are all responsibilities you're describing that are in excess of actually like the creative process of making the film. Um, so that that sounds extremely difficult. You mentioned um, the language barrier. Um, something that you you talk about is the is this kind of and I wanted you to elaborate on this this concept that. Um, indigenous people in Quebec face a kind of double solitude, mm-hmm. an additional level of marginalization, something that I don't think, you know, in the in Anglophone Canada, people are, are even aware of, like it's not on their radar, this kind of, you know, gap between Indigenous Anglophone and Francophone communities. Um, you know, there are, as you say, 11 nations in Quebec, many don't speak English, you know, having that language barrier at the societal level means not being able to access key resources and tools that are available elsewhere. You know, I'm not bilingual. I don't, I didn't have an awareness of these kinds of issues until I saw you speak. (laughs) And I just wondered um, if you could elaborate on that idea of like a double solitude. Well, most often for indigenous communities in Quebec, English is uh, their third language. So Hmm. can you imagine the amount of people that only speak one language in, in Canada uh, let alone having to learn three languages, it, it's a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess within the film industry, uh, most of the indigenous film industry is uh, rooted in anglophone speaking um, industry, and and for so which means that francophones, indigenous francophones in Quebec, don't don't necessarily have access to all the resources, the tools. Um, that is available uh, nationwide or even international uh, wide because, um, you know, the Maoris, the Samis, the South African, um, they all have this common uh, international language that is English. So that means uh, just being able to access uh, training or uh, keynotes online or uh, going to Imaginative, which is the biggest Indigenous film festival uh, in in the world, but based in, uh, in Toronto, uh, every industry and professional meetings and uh, networking event uh, happen in English. So what do you do when you're, you know, the language barrier is there? So you can't promote your film, you can't promote your work, uh, you can't make connections to make your next film, and that already blocks opportunities to, to keep, you know, um, advancing your career or advancing uh, just getting your pro- projects done, which means which means that we become insular. We we stay in Quebec and we create work that are going to be made in French that are, very often don't make it outside of Quebec because uh, they're not necessarily translated into in- English. So we we start making work for ourselves by ourselves, which is not a bad thing in, in itself. But how do you branch out to being? able to access bigger platforms and getting your work recognized. And I know you've talked about how you've kind of worked as a liaison almost for creatives, like offering uh, the work of kind of translating maybe grant proposals and these kinds of things. The thing though, um, that does seem to be, seem to have been, uh, uh, you know, democratized first is documentary. Um, There's something much more sort of open about that particular mode of communication documentary it's it's more it just seems like it's more um uh germane to forms of like experimentation and 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 new voices right 
and and I you know I originally discovered your work through uh, the National Film Board website, you know, an aggregated list of films that uh, warrant attention. Um, and you you know you talk about how the National Film Board plays a major role and has been proactive in catching up. It has this kind of long history um, that a, a bit of a head start on this kind of work of if not inclusion, more like distribution or democratization. Um, and I kind of wanted to use this as a way of, of thinking through uh, what I, I guess is to some extent a breakout film for you, uh, Mobilize, mm-hmm. uh, which has made a huge impact. You know, this this is a film that actually uses segments from National Film Board uh, films, uh, in particular the 1965 documentary High Steel. Mm-hmm. Um and it's it's just this incredible text that my students were absolutely floored by, and and it's crazy to me to think that you were given one week to complete this this film. Um, I was given one together? month. One month. Oh, to complete. one month. Yeah. Maybe that was misreported in an article that I read. Mm-hmm. Um, that, yeah, I could. I had one week one... to uh, find the concept, though. So it ah, was yeah. it was a very fast paced uh, film, and I think that's why. You can you can feel that urgency in the film. It's very fast paced mm. and it puts you out of breath. And it was the intention. It was uh, I think mm. every work that I make kind of reflects also where I'm at um, in a particular moment in time as a as a person. Mm-hmm. And you're you're kind of you know uh, uh, straining creatively to construct something that does have this kind of force. I know you started with Tanya Tagak's uh, song. And then tried to piece it together from there, um, but the film as a whole doesn't. You know, many critics have noted it doesn't explicitly state it's in in the way that another filmmaker might kind of documentary purpose or message. It's it really. And, and you talk about how this is often um, your your way of operating as an artist is not necessarily to say you know like Glenn Coulthard has this this book Red Skin White Mask where he talks about native migration to urban centers over the last few decades. And it's it's a deeply academic book that provides you with a certain kind of glimpse into how, um, you know, industrialization, resource exploitation, all of these things are creating um, a, 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 re- cons- a kind of like reconfiguring mm-hmm. of, of life. Um, but rather than like explicitly say all of that through like voiceover and so on, there's something that does the work that is much more um, abstract and, and I guess experimental, but more like associative. Um, and, mm-hmm. and so I guess I wanted to ask you about the, the way that you approach conveying a certain kind of like emotional import in your work. Like you say, you try not to spoon feed the audience. You, you like to leave it abstract. And I guess rather than asking you why abstraction as a whole is important, which is almost like a meaningful <laughs> question, I more am curious about that desire to inspire an emotional reaction. Is it about like Rebecca Thomas is a Mi'kmaq poet here in Halifax. And she talks about how her poetry is about trying to use emotion to actually overcome certain entrenched ways of thinking about um, the division between the kind of borders, as you say, between Mm -hmm. cultures and communities um, and the kinds, you know, like overcoming people's personal attachments to histories, ways of knowing the world. Like, is that, the whole kind of function of emotion for you is to kind of overwhelm all of those things that really like mm-hmm. constitute us somehow as people? 
I, I do I do really appreciate when a work can be emotionally charged and can speak for itself uh, and where um, audiences can each feel whatever they want to feel. Um, and I think that's why I don't like to spoon feed people because it's interesting to see how audiences react to a work uh, and uh, people can react in very different ways. And I think that's where it becomes very beautiful is that you take it as your own personal experience and everyone has a very different um, uh, individual experience towards the work. So, and I thought we could maybe connect this to, I think one of your most recent pieces, is it titled Transatlantic? Yes. Which is this, again, like overwhelming video installation. Uh, this, uh, yes, this one is an installation at the Broad Museum in Michigan State uh, right now. It's an installation, but the original installation was titled Like Ships in the Night. Right. And it was presented at the Walter Phillips Gallery at the Banff Center for the Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think this this work is probably the most um, uh, sensory, emotional piece that I've done. Uh, where I really want audiences to uh, to be able to um, reflect and 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 feel uh, what they want and see what they want. Um, I'm I'm proposing images. I'm proposing um, uh, a voyage, a journey. But everyone's journey is different. And um, uh, yeah, that was the intention behind the work. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you used the verb proposing. Right there is again this like. Uh, a not instrumental, not necessarily, you know, very sort of heavy, heavy handed. It's a much more open, open ended, yeah, uh, proposal to the audience to, you know, immerse themselves in this journey that you took across the Atlantic. Um, and it's it's funny that the, even viewing it uh, on YouTube is <laughs> is it still has. I can't even imagine experiencing it um, firsthand. Uh, you know, this kind of this this attempt at mediating in an immediate way that that colonial route it's so absorbing and it reminded me honestly of a a documentary that i watched on greta thunberg uh Mm. i am greta Mm -hmm. where you know this this now famous journey that she makes across the atlantic um on a sailboat is depicted as this absolutely excruciating thing (laughs) um and you really do feel her her nausea but you feel it in part because she is describing it to you. Mm-hmm. And and that's maybe the difference when it comes to uh, the, the installation that you created is that it's left up to the audience to decode um, the kinds of emotional, um, you know, impacts that this journey had on you. Um, so it's, it's absolutely incredible. I hope people, um, you know, sort of check it out, uh, at least um, online. Uh, yeah. If they can, it's a large scale video, so you're re- it intended it, uh, it to be an immersive experience. And although I don't put any words to it, I do purposely uh, invite you to to go through a series of emotions, and that can be, you know, boredom or um, serenity or also nausea, because I do have this part where it's going very fast and it's very tumultuous, and um, so hoping people people do experience it in some ways. Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, I, I, I want to make sure that I uh, attend to as much of your work as possible. Um, <laughs> in, in, uh, in an interview with Criterion for your, uh, your film, your short film, The Black Case, mm-hmm. um, 
you talk about landscape, like you're asked about the the function of of the landscape, where it was shot, and these kinds of things. Um, and you know, we could talk uh, more broadly about the black case, uh, which you've said has been, you know, despite you know dwelling with the um, the reality of residential schools, it's been met with um, a very receptive audience, right? Like it hasn't. Well, I, you talk about being afraid of the kind of impact the film was going to make because it is so disturbing and deals with trauma. Yes. Um, the the you know gothic imagery of the opening, the kinds of you know black and white uh, cinematography in, in the film, it's all meant to kind of key the audience again uh, emotionally into a, a specific relationship with the landscape, and I think that's why you know Criterion was so interested in in asking you about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I wondered if you could. Um, you know, expand in some ways on the story behind that particular film, how you maybe found that location and why that location felt emotionally, I guess, like the right space in which to to construct this this um, this film. Well, the story is based on a true story. So it's actually um, uh, my partner's grandmother who uh, the voice we hear at the end, it's her story. Mm. Uh, she's a residential school survivor, and she—I remember many, many years ago. She she told me the story that she didn't like black case, and she didn't like, uh, you know, babies crying. And the reason why is because she remembers a doctor putting a you know, a dead baby in a black case. And for me, it was such a horrific uh, story um, that that you would only see in a horror flick, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I think. Uh, the movie was accessible to audiences because we decided to make it as a horror movie and to use that genre to to make it more accessible for broader audiences to speak about something as terrible as residential schools, but also not to um, uh, point the finger at it. Uh, because I think uh, sometimes when you talk about residential schools, uh, some people will shut down. They don't want to hear about it. They've heard too much of it or... So it was a way for us to use the genre and uh, um, uh, of filmmaking to talk about it uh, in a in a larger sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, this uh, this woman she lives in Manitoba. Uh, so the story was was uh, based from the prairies, but we, me being based in Montreal, we. Uh, we tried to to film it here, and uh, so we went to Oka. And Oka has this monast- uh, monastery, I think that's the word, monastery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it felt just uh, the perfect place to do it because it has also, you know, a, a history and and um, it relates to the story. And just the black and white images allows us to uh, not fall into nostalgia to, to make it a timeless piece, uh, even though in the movie you have you, you can tell it's kind of a period piece. Um, but just to to make it that it's not nostalgic that you you can feel that it's still very present today mm-hmm. and and that sort of um allergy to nostalgia is something that uh you know kind of runs through your work in a way that I find really interesting um you know you you are are dedicated to this kind of like escape velocity that's is seeking a way out of just as you say, like cycles of shame and abuse and victimization. And, and clearly, you know, you're using art to kind of uh, uh, accelerate toward that, that future. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, I, I find that so, yeah, I, I wanted to maybe speak with you about that. Um, and that sort of like how that, you know, comes with a certain kind of like tempered uh, resistance to nostalgia. Um, because, you know, on, on the one hand, um, we can sort of speak to the ways in which, uh, um, you know, a, a certain kind of like traditional knowledge can can serve the project or, or process of decolonization um, and, you know, recovering and, and relearning identity and so on. But what you're talking about, too, is how a certain kind of nostalgia can almost, if not romanticize the tragedy of colonialism or colonial violence, um, you know, reproduce a certain kind of cycle of victimization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, like there's so many films like your film uh, Kawani is a perfect illustration of that kind of drive for a language of indigenous resilience that doesn't just like rest on easy ideas of just victimization. There's this Mm -hmm. really, you know, multifaceted discussion of the effects of colonialism um, in producing violence within certain communities. Um, But, but it's always about sort of trying to find a way out. Um, And, you know, Tashina, for example, is about trying to find that way out through education there is, a, a, it seems, a certain desire to, a, a desire for liberation. Um, and do you think of it in term, in those kind of like explicitly political terms, or is it more akin to like Leanne Simpson's idea of a kind of decolonial ethic of, of love? You know, she talks in, in the book Islands of Decolonial Love about, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying to animate beings in the contact zone like is it about that kind of love as medicine thing or is it more explicitly about like a political liberation for you i would say more political liberation mm-hmm. i i think when i started making uh work in the first place it was to to counter uh feelings of shame and trauma and um really just finding a way to to regain some self-confidence and through making works i was finding this this self-confidence and uh, bringing positive stories to to the screen. I always wanted to celebrate uh, the positive. What it what is it we're doing that is positive instead of focusing on the negative? Um, and that's always been very very important. And uh, the more I'm making the work, I think that the more I really nurture that. It's it's about what are what are the stories that are that can inspire rather than pointing at the finger something you can you can bring those underlying uh, issues and talk about them but talk about them through a personal kind of um uh um self-evolvement or uh, through a personal uh journey or personal uh growth mm-hmm. um, so every film has been kind of centered around that um and uh it it really it it brings the viewer in there's a way in which it does um, provide a certain kind of corrective to um, maybe stereotypical ways that, uh, in particular, Indigenous folks have been represented, I think, in Canada. Tayaki Alfred talks about this kind of renewal of respect for traditional values, not just as something that relegates um, Indigenous communities to like a, a place permanently in the past, mm-hmm. but you know that can actually um, offer a solution to the political, economic, and social problems that, you know, plague the world at large. Like that to me is, is part of the, um, you know, part of the point of these kinds of uh, artistic texts is to 
mobilize, right? To mobilize people to uh, desire democracy, to desire self-determination. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a, I, I try as much as possible to make the work modern and contemporary. I'm not in, mm. interested necessarily of, um, of making works that are based in the past or that, uh, that has this nostalgic feeling to it. For me, it has to reflect the times we live in today and, and uh, the issues and conversation I hear uh, with my friends and my peers, what we talk about, what, what concerns we have. Um, and and also reflect my urban also reality and the things that that I'm attracted to and attached to and um, the visual uh, language and the sounds for me need to be modern and and feel very um, set uh, today. Hmm. Um, and even you know uh, I wanted to ask about the kind of specific materials that you use, um, you know, in terms of using, uh, you know, making the work that you do feel modern and contemporary and, and concerned about contemporary kinds of uh, social and political questions, you're also um, choosing stuff to work with <laughs> that is, um, you know, actually both traditional and contemporary and industrial, right? So, um, you talk about the the piece shield, mm -hmm. which is a series of eleven concrete triangles, and and the fact that you know copper is is this traditional material. I didn't realize it, but it's it can symbolize femininity, mm -hmm. um, you know. But you know, it's also uh, a deeply destructive, um, you know, uh, industrial material, right? There's uh, Lauren Redness has this book about Oak Flat in the United States as a site of potential copper extraction. Right. Um, so like your work really, it bridges again, it does this work of bridging um, uh, the traditional and the contemporary moment of, you know, hyper extractivism where these industrial materials, I mean, cement concrete accounts for like 10% of the greenhouse gases that we emit every year or something yeah. like that. Right. Mm -hmm, that's so you're working, you're, you're working with these materials in a way that I wonder if there's like a conscious attempt to, subvert even our relationship to the stuff itself that is so characteristic of like a hyper extractivist settler culture do you do you think about that when you when you choose these yes. these types of materials definitely every medium that i that i work with every material i work with uh does need to have some kind of symbolism or represent something and be part of the narrative that i'm trying to express um, i work with a lot of different layers of meaning through the work and this copper pipe going through cement blocks, uh, for me, it speaks about the resilience of indigenous communities or indigenous people throughout, you know, centuries, throughout the times. Um, the, the copper pipe is symbolic of this traditional uh, material. It has, um, it's part of kind of a, a royal uh, material, and it's linking each of these blocks as kind of a DNA um, uh, as part of our DNA, so I'm, I was saying that maybe you know resilience is part of our DNA. Um, mm -hmm. We've been built that way over the years. Um, yeah, it's it's a really stunning piece, um, and uh, you know I loved seeing you kind of speak to it. 
Um, and on Instagram, I've noticed too that you're you're producing these these highly abstract pieces of embroidery <laughs> out of Tivek. Is that how it's pronounced? This industrial material, Tivek. Tyvek, yes. Tyvek, sorry. That's what you um, see on uh, every everyone's uh, houses before right. they they finish the outside. Uh, um, yeah. And this is like another example of uh, something that can be quite a toxic material. Um, you know, apparently building our houses with this Tyvek, it doesn't make for safer houses. Like they can burn up faster, apparently. Yeah. Um, but you're turning it into a bright canvas for abstraction. And again, it feels like you're almost subverting these industrial materials. I'm using materials that I can find in my immediate surrounding. And, and ah. that's, that means uh, going to my local hardware store and, <laughs> and playing with uh, these textures and materials. Uh, but I do want to bring some kind of attention to, you know, the indigenous housing crisis and the way we build our houses and, and what is our impact on the environment. Um, all the work is aiming towards that for sure. And by using these materials, uh, people might not see it at first glance, but when you start reading about the work, that's when dialogue can open up mm-hmm. and that then those issues can rise up. I, I mean, I strongly believe you can possess the earth and and that we need to be careful about our impact on it. Uh, and using these building materials that are really basic made, uh, there's no vision for it for the future. You know, they don't disintegrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, often they're cheap materials that are being left on the land to to just stay there for, for, for years. Um, and, and they create a lot of damage. So... To use them and to alter them, to use them in a different way. I'm hoping, you know, to that that we can they become very apparent, so they're not just something that we hide and think that we're not using. Um, I'm bringing it back to uh, common knowledge that this is this is everywhere around us. Yeah, and and exactly like that that thing of just uh, making it visible. You know, the black case begins with this epigraph part of our history is buried under silence. Like there's, there's so much power that gets perpetuated just by concealment alone. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to take too much more of your time. You've been, uh, it's been so great talking to you, but I did want to um, maybe conclude by uh, again, coming back to the film 360 degrees, which I don't know how often you've thought about this film uh, recently, but I have to think that in the context of this this pandemic, a film that does think through um, a different relationship, not just to the land, but to medicine, to the health of bodies, could have a certain kind of you know relevance right now. Um, it's an incredibly moving film that is slow and it's subtle. It shows the transmission of traditional knowledge through just interaction. Um, but these ideas that are presented so subtly in the film about using plants to help the body regenerate offer a kind of corrective to the way that we're currently thinking about medicine, I think, which is, you know, we we need privately controlled Western medicine to, like, save us from this crisis. Mm-hmm. And, like, you have a different model uh, uh, presented, which, I mean, like, it, we're seeing the fact that in the context of COVID-19, that that model of medicine that sees you know uh, uh, solutions as primarily the intellectual property of corporations 
is not going to save us. Like yeah. you're, pre- you're preventing people from sharing information in the way that Mark's Mark in the film shares information. Right. Yeah. And, and these, uh, it's funny you bring, bring back this film up because uh, it's a film I rarely talk about and, uh, and actually often don't include it in my filmography. Hmm. But uh, it, it's interesting because these elders, uh, Mark and uh, many other elders, were talking about a pandemic coming uh, years ago. This film was made, I think, in 2008. So that's a long time ago that we were already discussing this idea of we would, we would be living a pandemic in this day and age. So mm-hmm. I think these are not new ideas or new concerns. Uh, we, we do know that the rapid, fast uh, li- lifestyle that we have is not sustainable and it will have a deep impact on humanity and, and, and the earth and the world. And we need to start um, going back to what is important and finding new ways of doing things um, and uh, learning about traditional medicine. I mean, everything is available for us already in our surrounding. You know, the world is really beautifully made. Everything is there for us. Um, and I think, obviously, traditionally, First Nation communities have understood that. Um, and it's a, it's a knowledge that we need to continue uh, sharing and across generations. But it's also we need to be careful to uh, not share it to, you know, pharmaceutical companies that mm-hmm. uh, will not respect the intellectual property. And so, like, the... Uh, it- the film really stuck with me and in particular this line that Mark uh, uh, says, and it's just, it's just dropped in again, kind of just an invitation to thought where he says the task at hand is vast. Mm-hmm. Like that is a pro- very profound statement. Um, and, and one that I kept thinking about, like, is he talking about the challenge of like the, you know, the, the kind of intended meaning seems to be um, that, you know, there is a real challenge to, you know, having to heal others like that role is it leads. He says to his own kind of uh, health being jeopardized, right? Like he gets burnt out from just having to treat people, and you're seeing that today with like the medical profession, the you know health professionals, um, you know, having to actually deal with in the United States half a million people dying from the coronavirus, like absolutely overwhelmed. ERs. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. the system of Western medicine is clearly sh- being exposed as something that is not uh, capable of sustaining life. I do agree that the task is vast, and and we see all these, uh, you know, environmental uh, uh, militant uh, being burnt out by the work at task, the the work they're doing, and and they're giving their all, you know, and and. It's, it takes a lot of energy and because there's there's another side of people and society that doesn't listen and doesn't change their ways. Mm-hmm. So when only one per, a few people are doing the work, uh, of course, they're going to be burnt out. I, uh, I don't want to take any more of your time, but it's been wonderful talking to you. Uh, your work is so insightful. Hearing you talk about it is is really wonderful. Yeah, it's it's been so fun. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been a real pleasure. 